Hello and welcome to the Sonic Fruit Film Podcast, where we aim to celebrate movies through the simple act of talking about our favourites. I'm Bennett Maples and today I'm joined by the celebrated Carl Cole, composer and Sonic Fruit's resident Foley artist, and the sublime Sam Hode, media academic and picture house employee. In this episode, we're discussing Alien, which was not the post-Brexit social drama which we'd expected, but is, it turns out, a cracking movie. So, gentlemen. Hello. It's 1979. And I think I'm right in saying unknown Sigourney Weaver at this stage, actress in an ensemble cast. Rewatching it, that was something I found really interesting to think. Actually, you look at that cast and you don't know that she's going to become wow. this amazing heroine. Well, um, it's, it's such a pivotal yeah. uh, role, isn't it? It's, it's such a key female character in the industry. Well, right? that's the thing. I, I, so I'm thinking I didn't know the film when it came out. I'm of a generation who's too young, I'm happy to say. Um, so I knew it posthumously, and I kind of already knew, therefore, that she was, you know, this kick-ass figure. But actually, you go back and go, yeah, you've got an ensemble cast, and she's just one of them. You don't know who's going to live and who's going to die. Yeah, I think because I would have seen the film alongside Aliens, where she really does blossom into this amazingly strong character. Because in, in Alien, you don't... It takes a while. Um, she is this... You know, she's a strong female, but she's. Uh, it takes a while for her to really become that role in the film. And then, of course, when Aliens uh, kicks off, and we're not talking about that, um, but it, it, she really runs with that. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think I think it really was the follow-up that that helped cement that. And we won't talk about the others. <laughs> they didn't happen. <laughs> no, we love them. And also, interestingly, because she, she, I mean, she does the right thing. She tries to stop them from bringing mm-hmm. the alien onto the ship, but you're not necessarily behind her doing that. No, and I think if that's the first time you're watching the film and you you haven't seen the sequels, which presumably nobody had in 1979, you're not necessarily thinking, "Oh, she's the hero; she's going to save them," because she's trying not to bring the thing onto the ship. Well, I, I watched a really interesting interview with uh, Jerry Goldsmith, where he described all of the characters as very unlikable, um, which I thought was quite interesting because I guess. I actually quite I like the two guys Parker is one of them but the two guys that have they're almost the comic relief in the film they're slightly Shakespearean I think they're, you they're always have those two little clowns that kind of come and, on periodically yeah they're moaning about what they're getting paid and um, how them having to stop on this other planet um, is taking time that they're not being contracted to do all that stuff so um, quite Ash, quite fitting I really, really like Ash the captain he's yeah very cool yeah yeah, uh, Ian Holm, you're never sure, are you? Even before it, the reveal, you don't know quite his motivations. But um, yeah, there's. I, I like the dynamic, I suppose. That's one of the great things about Alien, isn't it? It's the ensemble. Well, they, Weaver does then become, you know, the the key figure. The, all the, the naturalistic dialogue when they're all, you know, coming round from hypersleep and they are bitching about the company and their wages and their bonuses and stuff. I suppose, again, not knowing the context into which it arrives, but I think that hadn't been done before. You know, sci-fi was always kind of the Star Trek spectrum end of things. You know, it was clean. Blake and, Seven. Yeah, and very and things kind of... worked and it was all very shiny and... yeah. He said he wanted this to be tru- truckers in space or something. So that, yeah, 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 that's and right. Space truckers. and They're all very anti-hero, aren't they? None of them really want to go down to the planet. None of them are very happy about the fact that they're there. They were out there to do a job and now they want to go home. 
they're all very human though as a result mm. right yeah. they're not like non-emotion you know kind of future people they're uh, they're distinctly of of now kind of thing and people today so I th- I find I sympathise with them. Yeah, absolutely. And the sense of uh, relief, the the dinner scene for me is the the key one there because actually that's where they all seem really human. The sense of relief in the characters about mm-hmm. the fact that they had this close call with this alien being, but it seems okay. Um, and so they're sitting down and they're they're eating a meal together before they then go into hypersleep. And of course, it doesn't end too well. So yeah, it doesn't quite pan out. No, it? no, <laughs> we would have hoped. Um, that scene still shocks. I mean, we've talked on another podcast about Jaws and things, and I can watch Jaws, and apart from the Quint death at the end, it doesn't really scare me as I've got older, but Alien still has the power to really upset and disturb me. It's the look of shock on their faces. Well, that was When the initial spurt of blood comes from his chest. Some of that's real, isn't it? Yeah, he hadn't told them. I know, and that's the thing. It was such an amazing... the, the, The image, I can always remember the image as it... Uh, you get the shot of the rest of the crew as they're all their faces are splattered with a little bit of blood from his chest and mm. uh it's it's brilliant mm. it's just amazing so and what about the the style of it because you, you mentioned before but there presumably hadn't been anything that was as gritty as that the look of not just the ship but the alien and i mean even the style of the costumes and you know the nature of the crew when i think of it i always think it's an oppressive stuffy hot it's a sweaty movie. There's that great scene in, one, in like an episode of Cheers when they're all sitting around and they're talking about the sweatiest movies of all time. And I would always put Alien up there because it kind of, it drips. You just get that sense of, you know, and it's claustrophobic. And There's yeah. the great scene where uh, one of the characters is looking up. There's that big hall yeah. that he's in and mm-hmm. it's raining within this. The moisture's coming. Yeah, yeah. yeah and you feel that sense of like... The oh. chains are rattling and... Um, but it does really give that sense of it being humid and close and humid, claustrophobic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which again, you wouldn't expect in a, I mean, in a sci-fi generally, but generally, obviously, because you're, you're looking at computers and things all the time, mm. kind of assume that wouldn't go together. It's the use of colour as well, though, isn't it? Because mm, a lot of sci-fi muted. was very white and very clean. Everything was, you know, certainly you look at Star Wars or any of those films. Yeah. Everything's quite Well, 2001 had set quite a clean yeah. benchmark as well, hadn't it? Everything Completely. was quite sterile and NASA-esque one imagines but Alien isn't like that at all it's no. grimy and I think that's that's what really sets it apart gnarly as I think kids <laughs> say these days no 20 years ago they oh, were sorry <laughs> pop culture references out of date again so let, let me talk about the soundscape a little bit you took you reference Goldsmith yeah what did you make of the music as a music man um well I mean there's just an interesting story behind the music in this film anyway, because they had... Uh, I always loved the score to this film. It's beautifully haunting. And it wasn't until much later that I realised that Goldsmith was really unhappy with Ridley Scott because they'd cut out a lot of his original cues. And, um, I mean, Goldsmith was openly very vocal about this, and I think you can even see it on the the special features on the DVD. And um, because they'd, they'd essentially cut apart his original intentions they'd licensed they bought music from an older film of his called freud and dropped those cues in where they felt they fitted better because they were part of the temp track and that's a that's an issue between directors and composers that comes up a lot and they'd even um replaced his end credits music with uh another piece i'm trying to think of what that piece was but it was yeah it's completely unrelated to goldsmith's original intentions 
the the criticism that the studio made was that his score was too lush and romantic um and they wanted something more avant-garde and haunting and sparse and having listened to both i can i can see whether where ridley scott was coming from i think goldsmith maybe just didn't get the intentions from the director um both scores are wonderful i think um as pieces of music they are tremendous however i think what ridley scott went with does fit the film better um which is difficult because goldsmith's a god when yeah. it comes to composing music for film so don't want to talk against him no completely not but um i think you you know you'd have to uh, concede that he got this one wrong and actually the filmmaker's original intentions were were ultimately played out in the final cut yeah. so yeah see, i find that really interesting because within the soundscape of the film there isn't i mean we're we're pre 5.1 with this so that actually by today's standards there isn't a lot of sound mm. um there's some great sound but actually the music serves an awful lot of the purpose in terms of giving the ship character and setting the mood where much more these days i think you would you know you might pan down a corridor quietly because the sounds of the ship are going to speak for themselves mm. um in those days you couldn't really do that as effectively um, and the music does a lot of that, that opening sequence particularly. Yeah. You really get exactly where you are. And, I mean, even before you see the people, you know who they are. And The interesting thing is that with Goldsmith's originally, uh, originally intended score, that it, it stands the test of time better. It's more of a classic score. It's rich orchestration, um, you know, very orchestral. But with what they ultimately went with was more sound effects um as is kind of common with 70s film scores the introduction of echo units and things like that started jumping into film scores and being being part of the uh, soundscape and there's a lot more of that in ridley scott's version of the film so mm. um yeah and i find that really interesting because it dates the film musically because nowadays we we still use all those effects in film scoring but they're much more subtle Whereas, I mean, just the opening main title in the in the re uh, reworked version, the the version that ended up being released, um, features quite heavy delay on woodwinds, mm-hmm. which nowadays just sounds horribly dated. It sounds, uh, yeah, quite tacky. Just <laughs> because we could, yeah, because we could, and because it actually it was a new and a very fresh sound at the time. Yeah, but um, nowadays we you'd never hear a film score with that on it. Certainly not of of that kind of stature. The, the object, given when it came out, was to not be stoles. Exactly. I think it was presumably yeah, trying very to be much very so. anti. And I think the Goldsmith's original score had lots of horns, lots of, like, I was saying earlier on that there was a, uh, the main theme has a, a trumpet kind of introducing one of the main motifs of the film. And they dropped that in favour of something that was much more sparse, much more haunting, um, and very definitely not John Williams doing Star Wars. So... Um, yeah, interesting. I think because both directions for the film work in a in a cinematic way, um, it's hard to not be in love with the original, though. So, because Horner did Aliens, right? Yeah. yeah. Is was it Goldsmith or Horner who was responsible for that like four note mode? Da, 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 that place is that him? And was that on his original score in Alien? In Alien, that would have been Goldsmith. Or it would have been a repurposed cue. Um, as to which parts, I haven't been through with a fine tooth comb and found out. 
which part i would imagine it was probably part of because what they did as well is they took goldsmith's cues out of context and this is this is very upsetting to a composer is when the filmmakers will take a cue out of context and then put it somewhere else in the film of course to the composer's eye it's completely wrong that's saying we know the film better than you do yeah you didn't understand what you were doing exactly yeah so i can understand why he was upset but i can understand why ridley scott would have made that choice and ultimately the the studio because they would have had a if the studio says, you know, we, we don't like the music, the director has to answer to them anyway. So It's an interesting, I mean, so saying everything that we're saying it is an interesting studio film from that point of view because, mm. I mean, I suppose Star Wars had maybe changed the mould and maybe they felt that changing the mould was a thing that one should try to do. Um, but, yeah, looking back on it, there'd never been anything like that before. As we said. They're both Fox, right? They're both 20th mm. century Fox, yeah. And their pro- producers feature quite heavily on the... Bonus material on on the box set, don't they? And yeah. Do they? Do you know how they came to hire Ridley? Because obviously he'd done one film before, Duelists, yeah. And then this was his second film, right? Okay. And he came from advertising, obviously, but there is so much material on those uh, bonus discs that I've never made my way through all of it, and I don't yeah. know how much of it was his baby or whether he was, you know, did he instigate it or did, or did they bring him on as a director of hire kind of thing? Because kind of stamps himself in the way that it made Ridley uh, made Sigourney Weaver you know it, it set out a lot of Scott's kind of hallmarks from from the off didn't it it's it's very assured isn't it it's yeah. incredibly well done yeah very ambitious as a film and how they you know I, I always wonder how they managed to sell these ideas to a studio well I think one of the things that we find in this context when we're discussing films in this context and we're picking films that are this good is it's so difficult sometimes because the answer is it they did it right mm. it's clearly a good script the casting is incredible i mean they're, they're mainly pretty unknown actors at this point and now they're all you know they're all pretty much all names um and yeah it's really scott as you say hadn't really done anything at, the, at that point i mean the duelist isn't a film that you'd watch and go that guy should do a sci-fi film that's what he's missing <laughs> in his roster um so yeah he's not necessarily an obvious choice um but yeah, everything's right. The the style of it. It's interesting what you're saying about the music. I find interesting because rewatching it, I was surprised by how dated I thought it was. I really like this film, mm. um, but I was watching it and thinking, actually, yeah, it has aged much more than I was thinking, and I couldn't really see why. The costumes maybe a little bit, um, but the look of it and the movements of the camera and things like that don't seem to date it at all. It's computer screens. Yeah, a little bit of that. Yeah, I mean anything with lights in. Yeah, is is clearly we had lots of little bulbs, and in Venice it's the sounds is. as well because all the computers make that ticking they make noise. That top Matrix printer, yeah, yeah, as well, yeah exactly. They? Which nowadays you know it's like it would be like using the tones of dial-up in something that's meant to be current and you know sure. electronic data transfer. Um, it was all over the place in sound when in the nineties, but now it's not relevant at all. And so I think it's it's that kind of thing that. Back in the you know late seventies, early eighties, that would have been the sound people would expect from computers if they were to you know make an audible sound. Sure. Um, and when you see those computers, that is the sound you expect them exactly. To make. Yeah, yeah I mean, because the, the screens are very dated and the yeah, buttons are all and... very blocky and things like that. So um, it's not exactly Minority Report in terms of you know pushing the, pushing the boundaries on technology. But I get the feeling the budget. But it's not all. I mean, if you look, you know, the corridors and things like that, because they're all as we say, it's you know, it's very much space truckers mm. there's lots of pipe work and things like that so you know it's not a high-tech yeah. ship. steam a lot of steam so, in yeah. The yeah um so there isn't masses that really give gives it away 
the I mean, as you say, lights the core. Oh, the computer room. Computer room, yeah, yeah, which is obviously supposed to be the central kind of hub. Mother. Yeah, which is just lights on the wall, and that really looks horrific now. Yeah. But I do get the feeling, you know, the studio were taking a punt on something that they didn't know whether it would work or not, so spending a well, small again, fortune we're in, in an era where an awful lot of this stuff hasn't been done. A lot of it is experimenting, isn't it? Yeah. A lot of it hasn't, you know, won't be done conclusively until the 80s. But it's worth noting that when it works in that film, it is mm. amazing. Well, as, I mean, yeah, as you're saying that, I'm thinking actually, I, I remember thinking there's a lot of scenes that I thought would look more dated. Um, I've always thought the laser across the top of the eggs mm-hmm. is a bit weird. It's a bit like a Jean-Michel Jarre concert. Yeah. But, um, but the eggs themselves, everything else about that scene but is that, great. That, I mean, you can't not mention H.R. Geiger's um, influence to the visual look of that film, yeah. really, because... It's stunning. He makes the alien. He makes you know the the um, the eggs, the way they look, and everything is so kind of visceral. Mm. And uh, there's a sense of culture, isn't there? You, you really get a sense that you have just walked into a believable world where other beings have been existing in their own way. Yeah. Um, there's a sort of depth to everything that just make, gives it a tangibility. Yeah. Um, so about genre, where do we put this as a because I have to say, my wife won't watch it because it's scary. That's right. how she, you know, as far as she's concerned, it's a scary film. She actually won't watch any of the aliens because this first one is a horror film to her. It's it's the pacing, isn't it? It makes it feel like a horror film. I yeah. don't really think of it as a horror film. I guess I think of it as more of it, more as a thriller. But... I don't because I I'm scared of everything, <laughs> and um, I I think probably I wouldn't watch this now. Because I probably would be too scared of how scary it might be, yeah. but um, it's it's a very tense film, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. it's is suspense done really well. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, it's a. I think it's quite a benchmark if you want to direct a film with tension in in terms of is something going to happen? Is something going to happen? Mm. Just often enough, it does. Well, the, just often enough, the pace is slow, and then and I, the, I, the, the jump with the cat and yeah, the two jumps with the cat. I seem to recall coming out of that film pretty much hating cats. Mm-hmm. But it, it, because the pace is so slow, it really builds and it builds and it builds, so that when you do get to the end, and you're almost thankful yeah. that it's all you know. It's, it, all... it's really breathless. The last I can't remember how long, but she hits the self-destruct, and you've got that horrible countdown yeah. siren mm. going on, and it's well. You say you don't know how long. Actually, surprisingly short is, is the answer. Yeah, it actually isn't. I I, I remember it being ages, like a really long. It's longer in Aliens. That sense of getting out of there and getting out of there and getting out of there. Um, yeah, the, the the countdown itself is quite short. I think of it as a horror, though. Yeah. I mean, I I suppose the other main contender would be sci-fi for me, but it I think it's horror, but in a way that Aliens isn't. Oh yeah, you know, completely. I mean, I think of Aliens as more of an action film. Yeah, Aliens. Is and it's quite a horror film in the sense of we've got a, an ensemble cast, and they get picked off one by one. I mean, it's you know, I can see John Carpenter watching this and going, mm. uh huh. Yeah, I can see what I can do with that. Um, so it's quite, it's almost a Sasha it's a film in that movie, sense. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah monster's like, picking off, and you don't know who's going to go, because, I mean, as we said before, it's incredible. But, even, I mean, some of the deaths, are, I mean, thinking back to it now, it's coming back, you know, the bit where the Captain Ash goes down into the uh, into the air ducts or whatever, and yeah. you don't, you, you can't see him, you can hear him for a lot of it, and he's in the, and, the, and all you see is, 
he sort of swings around, shines the light, and it's there, and it kind mm. of does that thing with its arms, and then it cuts, and you know, and they know, you know, that it's all masterful. The bits yeah. that he gets right, and it's yeah. it's the constant, it's the very, it's the use of repetition in the sound that I find is is may adds to that claustrophobic feel of the film as well. The sound of the motion trackers and you know the siren we were talking about, the self destruct siren and things right. like that. It just and the steam coming out of the walls and all that kind of. It's almost like it's grinding away at your uh, at your defences to be able to not feel really tense. It builds that suspense really well. Yeah. It so. totally puts you on that ship, doesn't it? It's yeah. a fully realised environment. And the, yeah. yeah. And does it help? We did say before that they were pretty much all unknown actors. Um, I'm now trying to think whether actually that's true because. Yeah, I think. Tom, her, I mean, Tom Skerritt was he? I don't know. Actually, I'm I know. trying to think what I actually know him for now. I'm a big fan of Contact, so I guess I think of that. But yeah. Ian Holm, I think, didn't have, go on to have a huge film career, but he did a lot of work in theatre. He was very respected, I think, even at that stage. Yeah, well, same with John Hurt. John Hurt. He would have done a lot of theatre by that point, but presumably not a huge amount of film. I mean, Harry Dean Stanton was a name, in, uh, certainly in 70s cinema. Um, yeah, when did Paris, Paris, Texas come out? I think that was early, in the, early in the decade. Yafat Koto, the you know the black guy. Uh, yeah, he'd been a Bond villain. Been a Bond stuff, villain. Um, so you just pick that name out of your head. I love that name, Yafat Koto. Um, yeah, because I've got the cast, I can say it's Veronica Cartwright. I probably couldn't oh. have remembered her name, no. but you recognise her face. You remember her face? Yeah, for she's sure. She's one of those amazing actors who does have exactly the right face to play all kinds of different characters and, and then managed to just make you forget that she's been in other things. Um, Witches of Eastwick is the film I always think of her in. She's like the very pious um, sort of Parsons wife mm. um, and vomits all the cherry stones very memorably. Oh, is that her? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> A beautiful scene. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they pick them off one by one, don't they? And uh, isn't it? Aren't there comparisons drawn with one of the Agatha Christie famous, you know... Uh, oh, is it 12 Little Yeah, 12 Little yeah. It's that kind of setup, isn't it? Which, yeah. again, answers another, asks another question of what genre it falls into, because it, you know, is like a haunted house sort of, or, yeah. you know... Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it doesn't, from that point of view, it doesn't have the whodunit element. No. No, we're pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. it's not a massive <laughs> question of... Uh, but what's interesting is that Who's um, in the title? Obviously, they they introduce the face hugger as a thing, and there's a release from the tension when it when it falls off of John Hurt's face, and they're obviously enjoying their meal, and then it becomes this small alien, um, which you think, okay, that's a relatively minor threat, and then all of a sudden, over the course of a few out, what seemingly seems like a few hours, yeah, those things grow up thing, fast. Yeah, it's, a, it's this eight-foot-tall monstrosity. Mm-hmm. Um, you think it's impressive that giraffes can walk when they hit the ground? Yeah. But these bad boys. Completely. I mean, see how quickly the and little one move. runs. Yeah, that little critter can move, can't yeah. it? <laughs> that seems like a good note to wrap it up on. <laughs> and that little critter can move. <laughs> That's the conclusion of this. Except to thank Sam and Carl for joining me and to thank you for listening. And don't forget, if you want to contact us, you can email podcast at sonicfruit.co.uk or you can tweet us via at sonic underscore fruit.
Sonic Fruit Film Podcast is produced by Sonic Fruit with music by Carl Cole and engineering by Jake Kenny and Jordan Brett. For more information, check out sonicfruit.co.uk.